And here we go. There's a man open left side. Caught. It's Touchdown at 10 with Russell and Medhurst. Pleased to be joined at Touchdown at 10 by our good friend Joe Theismann, who will be the subject of a – the great thing about these NFL Network documentaries is I haven't seen one yet that has come out poorly. Uh, they're well done, and we finally get to see one on our great quarterback from Washington, D.C. here, Joe Theismann, coming up a Football Life Friday night at 9 o'clock. Joe, Pete, and Chris here. Appreciate a few minutes this morning. How are you? I'm great, guys. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for doing it, Joe, and congratulations. We're all pumped up for you. And, uh, you know, I I know Pete and I have been talking about, uh, you know, during the breaks and and whatever. I mean, you know, I didn't grow up here. I I grew up in New York watching games, watching Redskins games, you know, at RFK. So, uh, you know, some of those memories are entrenched in me, but not like people that grew up around here. And, You know, for people that grew up around here, this is going to be one hell of a tribute to you, number one, and number two, of a little, uh, you know, uh, uh, of a a memory, uh, if you will, vacation uh, back to those glory days. Well, I appreciate it. I like I'm I'm humbled and I'm flattered that uh, they asked they asked to do it on me. And, you know, I had a chance to travel back to my hometown, South River, New Jersey, because I grew up outside Mm -hmm. of New York. And of course, my you know, three years in Toronto and my four years at the University of Notre Dame and the 12 years I played here. And, um, you know, I look back at my football life and it's been very traveled. It's been very exciting. It's been very varied. And I have, I have yet to see the piece. So I'm supposed to get a link today to get an idea what I can expect. But um, my wife and I have been, you know, Rob and I have been sort of waiting with bated breath to uh, to see what it's going to look like but i'm i'm like i say i'm flattered and, and i'm like you um i've watched so many of foot of a football life uh that you know to think that i was included uh in now the library of them is is really an honor joe what the hell was going on at south river new jersey you drew pearson i mean what the heck is what, what the heck was going on up there at that time it, it's the water. It's the, it's the water out of the Raritan River, I think it was. We, we, we used to get asked that all the time. We had, you know, different guys. Tommy Barra, a buddy of mine, was a tackle. Andy Ivana was a wingback. I mean, it's really funny. All the guys I, I played with in high school, we all played Pop Warner football together, right, starting around the age of 12. And then we played junior varsity and freshman and varsity ball. So we all sort of grew up. Uh, really around one another. It's a small town right in central Jersey. And, um, you know, I mean, you literally walk across the street, you're in another town. Uh, or you walk down the block, you're in another town. So that's just sort of the way everything was. And we didn't really drive anywhere. We walked. I mean, I, was, I grew up two blocks from my high school where we had football field, uh, baseball diamond. We used to play stickball against the school wall, play tennis courts, basketball courts. My mom never had a problem finding me. All she needed to do was walk out the door, make a right-hand turn in two blocks, and just yell, Joey, I'd be there somewhere. I, I mean, listen, uh, I, I'm sure you were a good young man growing up, and uh, and your mom and dad uh, very proud of everything that you've accomplished. Um, I know part of um, I know part of this feature and part of this special is you know a conversation between you and Lawrence Taylor, and I, I believe you had told the junkies, if not, uh, I'm not mistaken, this morning uh, that you guys got to go back to RFK to shoot some video, the two of you together. Is that right, Joe? 
Yeah, we did. Um, Lawrence was kind enough to come in and, and spend some time with us. And I went down to the, I call her the old girl. She's, uh, she's rusting and, and sort of looking a little rough. But every time I walk in that stadium, I have the most incredible memories, not of that particular night, but of the fans and the NFC championship game against the Cowboys and, you know, standing on the sidelines and having your feet, my literally the ground beneath my feet was shaking because they were pounding on these aluminum seats that they brought in to increase the capacity in the stadium. And I mean, you know, to, to be able to play in front of our fans, to be able to play in our stadium for the opportunity to go to the Super Bowl against the Dallas Cowboys was um, you know, just an incredible experience all the way around. Cause people have asked me, you know, what's your most memorable moment in football? And certainly the Super Bowl is a memorable moment, but it's not in front of your fans. I mean, it's a, it's a defining moment in your life, but the one that always stays with me was that day at RFK with the fans and just, you know, um, chanting, we want Dallas, we want Dallas. And then, um, and then having, the, you know, Daryl Grant intercepts the pass and Danny gets knocked out and holy mackerel, we're on our way to Pasadena to play the Dolphins in the Super Bowl. Joe, when you look at your path, um, you know, certainly non-conventional, that's for sure. Uh, rarely do contract talks break down with a, a fourth-round pick, but they did uh, with Miami. And ironically, was that a blessing in disguise that it worked out that way? Because eventually, you know, despite being this close, thanks to a Leon McQuay fumble, you know, there was a Grey Cup potentially right there within your grasp already. Yeah. But, you know, w- was that a blessing in disguise maybe that – that path happened that way, and you ended up in Washington, and, and we know obviously there the rest is history from there. I almost, I almost think that we're on a predestined path in our lives. Uh, sometimes, you know, you look at situations and you wonder why something worked out the way it did, and when you look back on it, you think to yourself, well, maybe it was supposed to be this way. And you know, my contract negotiations with the Dolphins didn't go well. As a matter of fact, really pissed Coach Shul off enough to fly up to South Bend and read me a riot act. Oh after I decided to go to Toronto, uh, spent three years up there, and I would not have left. I mean, I was willing to stay in Canada. I loved it up there. Loved the city of Toronto, loved the people, loved the game. It was a wide-open game. It was great for me because I was playing, as opposed to sitting on the bench. But yet, when you look at the years I was in Canada, <clears throat> the Miami Dolphins went to Super Bowl. So, as a matter of fact, 72 was the undefeated season. And this is what I say to every Miami Dolphin fan, that had I decided to go to Miami, I, in all likelihood, could have been the quarterback of the 1972 Miami Dolphin football team. Mm. Would, we ha- would we have gone undefeated? Who really knows? But the fact that I didn't go to Miami, Don Shula went and got Earl Morrill. Earl Morrill started nine games that year. People don't realize that. Right. He was the starting quarterback in Miami during the undefeated season. Bob Greasy didn't play a lot of football. So I say this to every Miami Dolphin fan, by me not going to Miami, and Earl Morrill being there, they wound up having an undefeated season. So I simply say to you, you're welcome. At the same time, though, Joe, how much did Leo Cahill help your development that when you did get to the National Football League eventually, uh, just kind of what was an influence uh, was he as your coach in Toronto? Uh, Leo was an incredible. Leo was an incredible recruiter. Uh, actually, Greg Barton, who uh, we called him Hawk, Greg actually owned part of the Portland storm in one of the leagues that existed. And he was out in the Portland area. And, you know, Greg basically put in the passing game and Leo, 
Leo sort of orchestrated. He was he was the true definition of a head coach. He sort of oversaw everything, and the the development really came from having a chance to play. And and I I liken this to individuals when I talk about sitting and learning versus playing. If I read a book on tennis and tried to play Rafael Nadal, I don't think I'd do very well. But having a chance to be able to play in the Canadian Football League, to manage football games, to manage down in distances, to work mm-hmm. in, in all kinds of weather, those were the things that allowed me, I think, to come back to the National Football League and have a playing experience of some sorts in my background. Makes all the sense in the world. Uh, again, the only way you can probably work through your mistakes and get better is to develop uh, experience, and that's exactly what that opportunity provided. Our buddy uh, uh, Doc Walker, who, of course, uh, is back with us here on the Team 980 uh, Monday through Friday, different days and whatnot, Burgundy and Gold today, said this as part of uh, the special uh, A Football Life, uh, again, featuring our guest Joe Theismann. There are certain guys, I think, that are born to play quarterback, and that's Joe Theismann. So I ask you, Joe, were you born to be a quarterback? Like, did you know when you were six, seven, eight years old, you were going to be a quarterback and be as good as you were? Not really. Uh, I always had a, I always had a good arm. I mean, baseball was my first love. I started playing when I was like six, seven years old. And I still love, I, you know, I'm one of those guys, I can sit and watch a no-hitter and just be enthralled by the whole thing. People say, oh, there's no action. And now with the changes in Major League Baseball, it's going to be very interesting, mm-hmm. which would be a topic of conversation at another time. But, I, you know, I, uh, I guess I was destined to be a quarterback because I could throw the ball well. And I was fortunate, uh, you know, I had people in high school that helped me understand and develop how to play the position. Uh, and, and, and it's one of the things we – so was I destined to be one? Maybe the good Lord gave me an arm, and maybe that was the way, you know, it, it wound up that way. Uh, but there's so much more than just having physical ability to be able to play the position. And, and uh, I'm just – you know, one of the things I see in college football, and it drives me crazy, is when, I, when they talk about the offensive coordinator of college football teams, they're also the quarterback coach. And I say to myself, how can you coordinate a practice and correct your quarterback and do those two things efficiently? Mm. And this is why I think every college coach or every college should have a specific quarterback coach for their development and a coordinator who runs practice. But if you're asking somebody to do both, um, the coordination of practice is probably going to get more attention than the position of quarterback in the and the understanding about how to play it. And it is a complex position to play, both mentally and physically. When Joe Gibbs showed up, were you salivating at the thought of being able to run the Dan Fouts and Don Coryell type offense? And little oh. did we know, little did we know, I mean, you were playing some of your best football from a quarterback standpoint, a throwing standpoint, and this team was sitting there at 0-5, and we're sitting there in disbelief. People are yelling at Beathard, who's this Joe Gibbs guy? And ironically, you know, things changed after that. What what changed when you all, you know, had your conversation? Because the next week you guys won a game, you threw, you, you threw for 74 yards. Yeah, no, uh, it was when Joe, when Joe got the job, you know, obviously I knew he was coming from a – this Coriel-style offense and Dan Fouts throwing the ball all over the place. But, but I didn't have Kellen Winslow. And I, didn't have, <laughs> you know, I didn't have the receivers that he had. And, and we weren't seasoned in that offense. And Joe basically brought that philosophy 
to Washington, which I was excited as heck about. And then we go 0-5, and, and we lose to San Francisco. And, and you know how you sit in meetings sometimes, and the boss is talking to, which should be you, but they're really not talking to you? you and this is the way our meetings were. Is, uh, Joe didn't really want me. I wasn't his. So, so you know, he was going to go get himself a quarterback of his own. So I went to his house after we lost, and we sat down and we had a conversation. And he said, look, Joe, he said, you have radio shows, TV shows. Heck, I used to own the Washington Report, which was our newspaper, the Redskin <laughs> Report. I mean, you know, I, I, and I had the restaurants. And he said, you have all these different things going on in this city. I want a guy who's just going to play quarterback. And I said, Joe, look, I'll get rid of everything if that's what you want to prove mm-hmm. to you that I want to be your quarterback. But give mm-hmm. me a chance first. And we basically changed our philosophy. We went from a throw it around all over the place to a let's use the offensive line. Let's get Big John involved and let's become a different style of offense. And and really, we became the two tight end offense. And I mean, from that conversation that Joe and I had, we went eight and three, 12 and one, 16 and three, I believe 11 and five um, until I got hurt at, at, you know, five, four and five in 85. But it was it was Joe's genius, I call it, to be able to look at what he had instead of trying to take and fit a round peg into a square hole. He just created the square peg to go into the, the square hole. And we became a different style of football. And so it was really because of him and, you know, I used to drive him crazy though. I mean, I'm, I'm a little off, you know, I'm, I'm a little upbeat and flying around all over the place. And <laughs> Joe would sleep at Redskin park three nights a week. He, he, he would come walking out of his, uh, his cubby hole, his office at like seven thirty in the morning, getting ready for our meeting. I'd come walking down the hall and go, Hey coach, how's it going? He would turn around, look at me, he'd have his coffee cup in his hand. He would turn around, walk back in his office for 15 minutes. Oh, um, that's great. It was, it was, I mean, what an incredible man. What an incredible football coach. And what an incredible football mind. Even today, and I, I, Joe and I talk all the time. I mean, the, the man's in the Hall of Fame from NASCAR and professional yeah. football. What is that? That's yeah. all you need to know about his ability to be able to orchestrate and create opportunities for people and to understand what it's all about, understand really about winning. And uh, I, I just, I love the conversations with him. I told him, I said, look, when it, when, it came, when it comes to the red zone, you're the best I've ever seen. And I spent 23 years in broadcasting, mm. sitting with coaches. And when it came to halftime adjustments, we didn't make a lot of changes, but we made changes that were significant that could reduce two or three plays in a second half that could make a difference in a game for us. In 83, when we scored all those points, I got ready for football games There was no doubt in my mind we were going to win. The only question that I had was how many points we were going to score. He was that good at dissecting defenses. Wow. Uh, The great Joe Theismann, again, a football life Friday night, nine debut NFL network. Of course, you can follow him at Theismann uh, seven on Twitter. And of course, Joe, a man around town, uh, uh, you know, just always willing to chat it up uh, with the fans. So let me ask you this. You, you were talking about how you had to adjust and Coach Joe had to adjust and you guys were kind of button heads and all that. You know, we saw Russell Wilson and Pete Carroll get divorced because Russ wanted to cook more and Pete wanted to run more and do all the uh, other stuff. We see problems with Kyler Murray and maybe Cliff Kingsbury about practice habits. Uh, we see what's going on with Tom Brady and his personal life and maybe being a quarterback is too much. 
Is it harder to be a quarterback in today's NFL, Joe, where the rules are set up for you to have more success and there's more technology and there's more things available to you, or was it harder during your days when there was less bells and whistles, but it was also maybe harder to throw and harder to be a big-time throwing quarterback? I, I think you're really comparing oranges and apples. Um, this is and this is when this brings to just a little bit of a sidebar on this. You know, how do you define the greatest player or the greatest player, whether it's in baseball or basketball or football? Let's football specifically. I think you have to look at it in twenty-year increments, roughly, from like two thousand to two thousand and twenty-two. How are you going to compare? When I came in the league in seventy-four, we played fourteen games. How are you going to compare someone? who's playing 17 or 16, as it was previous to this past year. Um, I think the position is complicated as it is. Um, I think social media makes it difficult for the young people today. I mean, I, you know, I laugh all the time. And, and I, you know, Doc will tell you, I mean, if social media was around when we played, goodness knows. <laughs> I mean, I I don't even want to think about where half, half of us might be someplace where we can't get out. That's all I can tell you. I mean, it was, it's, you're, under, you're under a tremendous microscope now. And, of course, you know, the salaries force people to say, justify the number. You know, you're making $45 million. Go prove to me that you're worth the number. So there's added pressure from that element. Uh, when we played, there wasn't free agency. You played your rear end off to keep your job. Not to go for a bigger contract, but just to get one from where you were. So there were so many different elements in the game that made it different. And I get people come up to me and say, you know, the athletes today are better than they were when you played. I said, well, if you look at it that way, let me just ask you one question. Why are so many of the players that I had a chance to play against and with in the Hall of Fame? If they're, if they're so much better today, why are the ones that, that we competed against in the Hall of Fame? Um, like I said, I think it's a different time. It's a different era. It's a different athlete. I mean, when I first joined Washington, when I joined, we'll use the Redskins, in 1974, our weight room was a universal gym. <laughs> that was our weight room. Okay. You could stick it in a closet. And it was, that, that, was, that was our gym. Now, if it's not 15,000 square feet with every type of modern equipment, uh, you really don't have a facility that they consider worth anything. So, so many things have changed, and I, I think the game has evolved. It really, be, it's become the AFL, guys. Yeah. I mean, it's wide, it's wide open, throw it around, shotgun football. No doubt. But fundamentally, fundamentally, and, and this goes back to George Allen, if you run the football and play great run defense, your chances of winning go up considerably. You and that hasn't changed. Yeah. You spent the first 10 years, basically, of your career overcoming adversity. We watched Carson Wentz do it on Sunday, literally within the same game, because that that position, whether right or wrong, has the most has the biggest microscope on it, Joe. What are the keys to overcoming it? And for a guy like Carson, what did you see on Sunday? Because, look, I mean, just less than 12 months ago, same team, you know, his his career in Indianapolis was short-lived because of uh, things that happened in that game, but yet we saw him overcome it this time around. I was so happy for him. Um, obviously, for the, the success that he had in the first half, I thought he, he played a very solid, sound football game. I thought Scott Turner did a terrific job calling the game as well. 
And that's something that doesn't get talked about a lot, Mm -hmm. is the coordinator and the quarterback have to be on the same play. It isn't a question of a coordinator calling a play. The quarterback has to understand why that play is called at that particular time. And then he went through some struggles in the second half and bounced back. And that, to me, was was, – I think that takes all those – Things, the, all those ghosts in the closet that people wanted to, to lock him into sort of eliminates and said, this is the kind of football player he is and can be. I think the biggest thing with Carson was just trying to do too much at times, you know, swinging the ball over from one hand to another, trying to make a play, avoid a sack. And those are the things that he's going to have to focus on each week and let the defense go play. You know, let Tresco punt the ball. Let's see if we can get a field goal. You know, incorporate everybody else. I've defined the position as that of a, of a facilitator. Our job is to facilitate situations and make it possible. But I was so thrilled to see Carson, you know, do what he did and bounce back. Because I guarantee you, after the second interception, people were going, oh, gosh, there it goes again. And it, it didn't happen that way. And that was wonderful. But the position itself is extremely difficult to play. You know, you don't... Um, you don't get, like in pitchers in baseball, if you're a starting pitcher, if you pitch seven innings, you don't work again for four days. For us as quarterbacks, you're right. going to play 65, 70 plays. You're going to get the living daylight speed out of you, and you've got to go to practice within two days and then play within six. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, it's a position to me that um, it's, I think it's the most difficult in all the professional sports. And I consider myself very lucky to have had mentors. I mean, Joe Walton taught me how to play quarterback. I'm forever indebted uh, to Coach Walton. Mm. When I, when he, you know, Teddy Marchibroda was my first coordinator. Joe Walton was my second. But Joe taught me that, you know, your drop coordinates with the, the depth of routes. And you have to be able to do certain things and the processing of information. And, you know, nowadays you have co- uh, coaches and quarterbacks can talk. I mean, the coach can talk to a quarterback because they're communicators in the helmet. We didn't have that. Right. So the volume of plays that we had was limited by what Coach Bro could signal in. And actually, we sat down with Coach Don Bro, who was our running backs coach, but also signaled in the plays for Joe. We sat with him, and we came up with our own signals at times uh, to decide what we wanted a particular play or a particular type of play to be. So we were very involved, like guys are involved today, but in a little bit of a different way. Joe, there's a million other questions that, that I'd love to ask you, but we're, we're running up against it. I'll leave Notre Dame on the cutting room floor. I know that's got to be disappointing for you. But specifically uh, as to quarterback and Carson and all that, um, how, like we all know he's got a hose. We, we see it. <laughs> we saw it on Sunday to Terry, so on and so forth. How important do you think for him and for any quarterback today is the quick game and the ball location and the ball placement? And and the reason why I ask that, because, you know, oftentimes Heineke and Alex Smith and all that, no offense to them, they struggled in that area. And Carson has struggled in that area. Yet I thought their ball, his ball location for the most part on Sunday was pretty darn good. Uh, outside of, a, of course, the mistakes. How important is is that part besides all the vertical stuff that he brings to the table? Well, ball location is extremely important. I mean, if, if you're running, let's say, let's say Terry runs a, a hook, okay, a 15-yard or 10-yard turn in, 
and the defenders on the inside. You want to put the ball on the outside shoulder. That's the, that's the degree of which you want to work towards accuracy is to pinpoint the ball away from trouble. But nowadays, I mean, now there are all these 50-50 balls. You know, I was taught to throw the ball to the open receiver. Today, define open receiver. I mean, really, really, that's the challenge that you're faced Mm -hmm. with. And coaches encourage a 50-50 ball. Hey, if this guy gets one-on-one, put it up. Mm -hmm. Let him go make a play. Mm -hmm. That isn't the way I was taught. I was taught to find the open receiver and give him a chance to make a play. Um, And so, you know, the rules are different. You can't touch receivers down the field. But being able to – I think what's important is to get yourself in a rhythm. And that's what I saw Carson get in. And I thought Scott did a terrific job for him getting the ball out of his hands early, sort of getting him going. And, you know, it hasn't surprised me. Carson was high and wild with the first pass, high and wild with the first pass in the second uh, beginning of the second half. He tends to throw the ball. If he misses anywhere, he misses high. Um, And then he settles down. And so as, as I look at the way the offense is developing, is I think you want to get the ball out of his hands quickly. Give him, get the offensive line a chance to feel good about protecting their quarterback. You get the receivers involved quickly. You get you get in a rhythm for the quarterback position so that you can find a rhythm. Just as a side note, I was listening to Mike Rizzo earlier talk about uh, baseball and you know speeding up the pitch clock and finding a rhythm for the mm-hmm. pitches. You know, now it's 15 seconds if there's nobody on base, if it's 20 seconds if there's somebody on base, and then find a rhythm. It's the same thing for a quarterback, and that's the job of the coordinator, to be able to find that rhythm for him early. Joe, I still get the goosebumps, still get the tears every time I watch all the highlights on YouTube, and can't wait to watch this on Friday night. Uh, for You were such a significant part uh, of my childhood and my football upbringing can't wait to watch this coming up on Friday night. Congratulations again, and uh, certainly look forward to having you back in uh, multiple times here during the football season. Appreciate the time today. Thanks so much, guys. Take care. Talk to you. Thank you, Joe. You got it. Appreciate Joe Theismann, it. Uh, awesome football life coming up. If you've ever watched them, you know how great they are. They're well-produced, and um, can't wait to watch this coming up on Friday night because as I was driving in thinking about this, when Chris told me last night we were going to uh, be talking to him, you know, you go back and, I mean, you can go on YouTube and watch any of the highlights. Even if you're yeah. a young fan and you have no idea who Joe was, mm-hmm. just pull up 1982 Redskins on YouTube. Watch it. I'm telling you, if you go watch the NFC Championship game from 82, it's the most exhilarating experience you will ever have as a Washington football fan because it was that game was the gateway to nine years of sensational football in this town, which has not been duplicated since, may never be duplicated ever again. But we can put our hands together and hope. 301-230-0980. That's how you get to us. It's Russell and Medhurst. We're here till noon right here on the Team 980 and streaming live for free on the Odyssey app. Three zero one two three zero zero nine eighty. We'll get some more of your phone calls. We see you there. Three zero one two three zero zero nine eighty. Joe Theismann, simply fantastic. Maddie will have it up on the podcast. You'll be able to hit rewind on the Odyssey app as well. And look for for guys like me. I mean, look, Joe was my idol growing up. 
I was able to at least achieve backup quarterback status at Southern High. Behind the great Sean Salisbury. No, not that Sean Salisbury, but a Sean Salisbury like that Sean Salisbury that also wore number 12. How about them, Adam? What about Sean Salisbury steak? I love Sean Salisbury steak. God, I love Salisbury steak. It's very, very good. Very good. Guerrero, lifetime. You know what my passing stats were? Analytics nerds? Uh, probably not great. Um, absolutely outstanding, really? as a matter of fact. Guerrero, lifetime, one for one. One for one. 11 yards to Sean Makel in a 51 nothing route of nice. Gwynn Park. And you got the touchdown or no? No, because okay. we weren't. We were up big. That's yeah. why I was in the game. Okay, uh-huh. We were in the game because Sean and Keith Smith had done all the good work. Pedro had to just come in and mop it up so Sean mm. didn't get hurt. I was the I was the Chad Henney. <laughs> I was the Chase Daniel of Southern High that year. You could make a good living that way. Uh, yes, I did. In, in the league in which Starting right defensive play. end. So I, I was playing on defense all the time, but um, that was pretty cool. I'll never forget. I threw that pass to Sean. Sean caught it, and he ran up the field. I was like, oh, I can do this. This is pretty cool. But it was because I was motivated as a kid from guys like Theismann. Yeah. Um, because he was our guy here. Right. He was our guy. And as I've told I've told you the story, the fact that Coriel and Gibbs and them got blown out in St. Louis in 77, mm-hmm. and Don happens to luck into San Diego as an interim head coach, Gibbs ends up being his coordinator. He's got Fouts, Jefferson, Joyner, and uh, Kellen Winslow. And all of a sudden, Joe ends up being a coach here, and yeah. it changed Washington's football history Forever, you know, I, I there were so many questions that, of course, we wanted to ask him both of yeah, yesterday. We, we, we could do a football and, life with Joe yeah, right here, <laughs> and, and and about this team, right? And, and you hear he's, I don't want to say bullish on Carson Wentz, but he's optimistic about Carson Wentz. And you know, the one thing I will say, right, is, and I think we've been on this from the very get go. Carson gives them a chance that other quarterbacks did not provide them in recent years since Kirk. And when you look at what happened Sunday, again, you you could look at it two ways, Pete, right? You could say, well, against a bad defense, that's what Carson is going to give you. Four touchdowns, 300-plus yards, two picks. Uh, you know, they had three turnovers. Of course, one wasn't not his fault. But he's going to give you plenty of highs, plenty of lows, somewhere in between. There's going to be ruts, whatever. It's going to be a little bit of a roller coaster ride, as we've discussed. What I what I continue to wonder is how is Carson Wentz going to be against really good defenses? However, you define really good defenses, I wouldn't define Detroit as a really good defense. I think the Eagles are a much better defense, clearly, than Jacksonville and Detroit, so maybe this this answer won't be even potentially answered until next week. But that's what I'm curious about right now because I will say this. Again, he was great when he needed to be early and late last year, but there was a lot of nothing burger in between, right? That's against Jacksonville and a a, a, a Defense that's getting better, but clearly on the back end, I know Shaquille Griffin, whatever. They don't have anybody on the back end that's really, right. really, really, really good. I guess, I guess combining what Joe had to say about Carson, about what Ron and Scott say, I really wonder where this is going to go when the competition gets better. And what I mean, again, Philadelphia, Dallas, your boy, Dan Quinn, 
creating turnovers, all of that, the way they ambushed that that defensive line in front seven, the way they ambushed the commanders, beat up offensive line down the stretch twice last year. Uh, that's where we're really going to find out about Carson Wentz. Unfortunately, the referendum is is going to be week to week and game to game and throw to throw. And that's maybe not fair, but that's just the way it is. That you know, that's part of what we talked about, how the game has evolved and how the position has changed, right? You have more access to data, you have more access to analytics, you have more access to film that maybe Joe didn't have 35, 40 years ago, right? But you also have, as he pointed out, social media, the glare, the spotlight, the negativity, the media, the 24-7 nature of it. So we're not I mean, and, and maybe that's unfair, maybe that's fair, but we're not going to find out about, like, there's nobody, even if Carson Wentz goes into Detroit this week and kicks their ass and throws another uh, three, maybe four touchdowns, and maybe eliminates the mistakes, are any of us going to come in next week and say, oh my God, we have Carson Wentz, where's the gold jacket, he's going to Canton? I, I don't think we should do that, because we have to look at other variables, right? We have to let it play out. We have to see, hey, now that he's got all of these tremendous upgrades and talent that he really never had a complete snapshot of I I think by far this is the best talent he's had to play with but we can't do that that would be irresponsible right if we came in here next week if he's three touchdowns 300 plus yards no mistakes and go oh we have the quarterback for the next eight years I mean is that fair or yeah I mean uh, but again think about what's at stake here okay and I, I think that's the other angle of this think about what's at stake if Wentz plays well, mm-hmm. he's certainly going to be your guy likely over the last two years of the contract that still exist. Sure. And the question is, do they rip that up and do they go in a different – let's say he maintains a consistency to this season, mm-hmm. plays well, makes the playoffs, mm-hmm. okay? They likely rip that up at the end of this year and maybe come up with a new deal for like three years with similar compensation probably north of 30 – Oh, and I would, I would say I don't know about that. I don't know about that. That's Wait, a risk. If, if you think, it, well, let me ask you this. It's a risk. If you he, think Wentz is, do you think Wentz is going to him and haul about whether it's 35 or 38 right yes. now as opposed to 33? Well, I, like if they win nine or 10 games this year and say he's got that, again, roughly three and a half to one touchdown to turnover ratio, something like that. And if he goes for 4,000-plus yards, even though I don't think 4,000-plus yards is that hard in today's NFL, especially with the 17 games. Not many guys have done it here. I, I know. I know. <laughs> well, you know, part of it is because it's hard to stay healthy, which he's struggled. But say say he achieves all those barriers, right? Mm-hmm. And say they make the playoffs. Maybe they win the division. Maybe they don't. I, I don't know. But say there's a lot of good signs here, okay, oh, that play out over this year. I already – told you during the offseason I was worried that they were going to run right to the you know and do a a contract extension you know uh, like as a kind of sign of confidence for him I want them to wait as long as possible but what I fear is if he has a really good year this year very good year uh, you want to say great okay what I fear is the mega extension in the neighborhood of 40, 45 plus million dollars per year that puts him in, again, that very rich neighborhood of a Deshaun Watson, of a Aaron Rodgers, of no. a no. those guys. You, I mean, like 
I, I don't know if he would top, he wouldn't top them, but I, I think you're way, 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 way underestimating the market if you think he's going to settle for like $31 million or $32 million hey, a year. Look, on this average. is a dude that was struggling to stay in the league and Washington threw him a life vest. Uh, if he hems and hauls over, you know, another five or $6 million, remember, he's already made a lot of money in his career already. Yeah, I know. He ain't poor. So, I don't. I mean, and again, because of that inconsistency, I don't think you can afford to get up north of 40 uh, with this quarterback, but I think you could still win uh, a decent amount of games. Let's get Mo in here before the break. What's up, Mo? Hey, it, depends, it actually depends on Samuel Howell's uh, development. I was listening to y'all conversation. Because Sam Howell is, is, is the linchpin. Like, yeah, Carson Wentz can get two to three years or whatever, but it all depends on how the organization feels about the development of Sam Howell. Because if they feel like Sam Howell can give them something similar to what Carson Wentz can give them, then they'll probably go with the cheaper version in Sam Howell. Um, I think I did an excellent uh, job with the interview uh, with Joe Theismann. I'm very worried about our, our linebackers in the middle. Um, not in their, in their passing fits because they both fast and they both can run, but in our run fits, that's going to be a, a problem uh, throughout the season. And real quickly, with the Phoenix uh, uh, Mercury and, and the Suns owner, Sauber, I, I use the N-word with my kids all the time. I just told them no five times yesterday. <laughs> that's a good line love it Mo that's a good time. that's good stuff buddy I like it Mo appreciate uh, it we haven't talked about that maybe we can get into that in the 11 o'clock hour it's just a, uh, just a heinous situation uh, out there the linebackers obviously will continue to talk about I, I just you know I don't know I, like Pete I, I I think this team Going back to Wentz, I mean, clearly he is the number one X factor, and he can make up for some of their inefficiencies on both sides of the ball, on defense and on offense, right? And when I say inefficiencies on offense, I mean their their ability to make mistakes or their propensity propensity yep. to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. I, I I hope at some point we get some stability in terms of level of performance this year, and that it's not just. Again, that roller coaster that we all think, most of us think, it's going to be. Because while that's going to be a wild, fun, interesting ride, and it's going to make, again, make you pull your hair out at times and make you pound your chest with pride at times, I think this team, what this team needs with all of the other questions and holes and how competitive this league is and how close this league is, they need they need some sort of stability or consistency at that position and play week in, week out, every game. That's what they need more than anything. More than – I don't want to say more than wins. They need that. Yep. Got to see those first. You know. Got to see those first. Got to see the performance. Week one, certainly a lot to get, um, you know, pretty excited about the potential going forward if they can ease up on, uh, you know, a couple of the – I mean, look, the the screen – the more I watch the screen – I'm 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 mad that he threw the ball. Period. It's a hell of a play by uh, the by Walker, but he's not throwing it to anybody. There's yeah, nobody there. I I, I agree. Nobody there you. in a white jersey. Watching it back closely again last night, I'm like, there's nobody there. Okay, I understand the kid made a great play. To when, your point, but when, but, but when you're when doing? you're doing that play against air, yeah. there's nobody ever there. As it turned out, his own player wasn't there. Yeah. In that situation, yeah. and that's probably something he'd like to have back. But at least for week one, certainly a lot to like. And that throw to McLaurin down the sideline, buddy, 
Mr. McLaurin never broke stride. No. What do we talk about? Oh, yeah. Never breaking stride, not coming oh, back yeah. to make a contested catch. Hell, not coming back to have to break up an interception. Yep. He was right into the end zone where he's supposed to be when he beats his man just like that. And that throw beat the safety by a half a mile. Coming up, more of your calls, 301-230-0980. And as Chris mentioned, Adam Silver delivering the boom on the Phoenix Suns owner. Talk about that in the 11 o'clock hour, plus the dumb-dumb of the day. It's all straight ahead in the last hour and 15 minutes. Right now, you know what time it is. All right, if you missed the great Joe Theismann's thoughts on Carson Wentz, Scott Turner and the commander's offensive performance on Sunday and moving forward, including this Sunday in Detroit, go back and check out the Odyssey Rewind feature on the Team 980 on the Odyssey app. Go to Touchdown at 10, 10 o'clock. Great conversation, 20 minutes or so, with Joe Theismann, including the debut of A Football Life on NFL Network on Friday night. Uh, also, coming up, the Commanders, again, facing the Lions. At Ford Field, the Detroiters lost 38-35 to Philadelphia in come-from-behind fashion. They almost closed the gap. But for the first time since November of 2020, for whatever this is worth, and it might not be much. The Detroit Lions are favorited to win a game over the Washington Commanders. One, one and a half point spread no matter uh, where you go. Commanders about to hit the practice field a little under an hour from now out in Ashburn as they begin on-field uh, preparations for the Detroit Lions. Sunday at 1, we'll have full day coverage for you right here on the Team 980 and the Odyssey app. Orioles-Nationals close out a two-game Battle of the Beltway Series tonight, 7.05 on 106.7 The Fan. Listen to Pete on the way home, and that's what's trending. Does it bother you that Washington's an underdog? No respect for their win last week over Jacksonville, going on the road against a team that essentially was uh, not totally blown out, but Philadelphia was comfortable until those two cosmetic touchdowns uh, late in the game. Does it bother you that Washington's an underdog, not getting a, a sense of respect from the smart guys, or is this just a ploy from Vegas to get everybody to unload on this game and bet on Washington in this football game. I don't know what Vegas is up to, but if Vegas is up to anything, I'd lean heavily towards trying to sucker both sides as much as possible. Well, that's the goal. And to make as much money and to not be right in terms of who they pick and what. And this is exactly why I go crazy. And and this is a fault of mine. I'm just going to admit. Pete, I... I, I just I think the odds makers in Vegas I, they know something they they know data they know information that's publicly available they do not know what people think they know just because they've installed the lions anywhere from I mean it opened up as a point a point on Sunday night I guess it's now kind of hovering depending on what book you use between a point and a half and two and a half points whatever I don't know what the final number will, will be I'm I'm telling you. Like, Ron might use this as motivation. Hey, look Look at what they think of you. You guys won. They lost. They, they're terrible. They've been, you know, they haven't been to an NFC championship game in as long as you have. 30 years. 30, 31 years, right? I guess it is. Mm-hmm. 
right? 91? Yep. Because they played each other in the NFC Championship yeah. game that year, right? Look at this. You you guys are underdogs. They're crapping on you. I don't think that makes one ounce of difference to players. I, 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 I really don't. Put I, it I, on the whiteboard, Ron. I, yeah, I, I don't think it makes one bit of difference to the fans. Like, if you're really upset about this, get a new hobby. Sorry. Do something else with your life. Again, I will tell you this. It means absolutely nothing. Vegas does not know anything that I don't know, that Pete yeah, doesn't know, that Essex doesn't know, that you don't know. the game and say, they didn't respect us. Yeah. Because that's what's going to happen. If yeah. they win, they're going to say, nobody respected us. But now we're 2-0. They're going to have to respect that name. Commanders. Let me, let me ask you this. You're around respect the W. You're, you're around athletes all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Navy. And they're different kinds of athletes, obviously. Nationals, other athletes, crazy sports, what have you. I mean, clearly the NFL is a different beast. But do you think that most athletes get off, if you will, on being doubted, no. questioned, criticized, I, picked I against, what have you? That's different. Doubted, is, doubted is, is something that pertains to an individual athlete, I think. But in this case, I think, look, I think athletes, 99% of all competitors show up every day to win, whether they're 40-point underdogs or 4-point underdogs or 4-point favorites or 40-point favorites. Competitors show up every day wanting to win. Professional athletes show up every day having to win because that's how they make their livelihood. So that's not going to change, and it's going to be one of those things that they can kind of have fun with after the game and say, nobody respected us. And in this case, we actually have some analytics to back it up. Let's go to Mitch in New Jersey. What's up, Mitch? Mitch? Mitch, it's your turn. Oh, oh I'm sorry. I'm not cleaning out the wheel, but it just seems like it. How's it going, guys? Wonderful, Mitch. How are you? Yeah. All right. Pretty good. I think Washington was a little desperate. I think they should have traded for Jimmy. And he's had one good game. Even he has a good year. We're, we're coming out with giving these, a starting, any starting quarterback $25 million plus. Is that, I mean, is that minimum wage for a starting quarterback? Well, yeah, pretty is much. That an yeah, pretty much. Well, I mean, pretty that much. that's the way the game is played now. I mean, if you're any good, yes. Well, well me personally, I want to see Sam Howell. But um, I unless mean, he's outstanding, has an outstanding year. I mean, I don't see the leverage. He's had too many injuries, and he's, he's had an up-and-down career. And well, it's, it's going to be great, uh, this, this game Sunday, you know, golf against uh, against Wentz, uh, the top two quarterbacks in that draft. They're kind of disappointed. Both teams gave up a lot. Anyway, I'll let you talk. Thanks for taking my call. Sorry for the delay. Uh, that's all right, Mitch. Let's go to Daryl in Columbia. Daryl, you're up next on the Team 980. Hello. Hey, Pete. Hey, Russ. You know, what's I up, think Darryl? what's going Hey. I think what's going under the radar, man, what I really enjoyed seeing the other day was uh, Scott Turner being creative with um, uh, uh, the other running back in Gibson, uh, putting them both in the backfield at the same time. Because before, you know, they would put uh, uh, Jay, uh, what's the other back's name? Jared Patterson. Um, no, 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 no. Uh, the, the, the third down back. Oh, J.D. McKissick. Yeah, yeah, he put McKissick in, so they would all, the defense would always bring in like an extra extra defensive back to guard him. But when you put both of them in that backfield, you don't, you know, you you can't bring in another defensive back because they can run the ball with Gibson, and you can't put a linebacker in there in case they run because 
they can't even keep up with Gibson and, and McKissick. So I thought that that was really creative, man. And and that's that's a hard, you know, that's that's a hard offense to defend when you got both of them backs that can be runners and catchers out the backfield. Man, I think that was very creative. And I think, you know, and Gibson showed, you know, um I think that he was he was the X factor. You know, they couldn't they couldn't stop him. I think they should have uh put the ball in his hands even more. You know, I think he was a leading receiver. Darrell, appreciate the call. I, I thought it was a heck of a job by Scotty Turner. I mean, you, you saw much more creative concepts because you have talent to do that. When you have talent, you can be much more creative in the concepts that you're creating out there uh, for the team. And we saw that in game one. Now the question is going to be, you know, can he be like Andy Reid and add something each week, a little wrinkle each week that, you know, really puts the defense in, in matchup conflict. And I think what you just brought up there with Gibson and McKissick does just that because trends-wise, you don't know if it's going to be run or pass. Uh, when those two guys are in the game. We know why teams go dime, nickel, whatever. They do it based on the trends of the analytics. But if I got Gibson and McKissick both out there, I have no idea whether it's going to be a run or a pass. By the way, our thoughts and uh, prayers with the gang over at Bethesda Chevy Chase, Montgomery County Police reporting there's a gun on campus and the school is in lockdown mm. right now. So our thoughts and prayers with those kids and the staff over there at Bethesda Chevy Chase right now. Robert Sarver, Adam Silver bringing down the hatchet big time. Who is he and why did he do it? We'll talk about that next. 301-230-0980. It's Russell and Medhurst till noon. Burgundy and gold today coming up at that time right here on the Team 980 in the Odyssey app.